please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, the whole chapter before us. I have it on the insert for you, if that would be easier, a short outline. We come to chapter 5 as a bit of a reset in the book of Genesis. We've come through the difficulties of the fall and then the murder of Abel, then the extension of the line of Cain. You have the seed of the woman promised to eventually crush the head of the serpent, but there will be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those two lines define the rest of Scripture, basically. I'm not saying we should always identify who's the seed of the serpent. Sometimes, though, it's obvious. And in the case of the line of Cain, we see this to be true. We'll see it in other places. And then we'll discover in chapter 5 the line of Seth. So Cain is in chapter 4. Seth is in chapter 5, which describes how God continues the line of the seed, the anointed seed, the Messiah, Christ. Um, In the meantime, though, that's the big picture. There are some uh, practical applications that are universal and timeless for all human beings living under sin and death. So it's like a reset from chapter one, but now with the addition of the reality of sin that has entered. We still see the image of God. We still see the, the great potentiality of mankind because of the image of God and the blessings of God, the design for the family, the design for um, the family line and so forth. Those things aren't stopped, but sin definitely affects. And so we pick up now in chapter five where we read um, God's holy word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahaliel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for its thoroughness, its carefulness. Even the details intrigue us and inform us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us special insight as we seek to understand this heavenly word. We can't understand it with natural eyes. We need your help and your Holy Spirit. Uh, it promises to attend the reading of your word. So I pray for this reality as we study now, as we sit under your holy word. And I pray that we would discover what is true and then also how you might have us live accordingly. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a genealogy. This is the first of ten such genealogies that will appear in the, these early sections of early section of Scripture. Every time, every once in a while, we'll find listings of families. They're very important. Apparently, God wouldn't put them there if they weren't. It's an interesting uh, irony that happened not too long ago when I was discussing with uh, one of my sons uh, about genealogies and their purpose, and his comment was that they're boring. This is the boring part. I have to read through this section. It just takes a long time. And who cares? He said. Now, I found it ironic because he was also at the same time on his phone setting his fantasy football lineup. Now, how was he doing that? He was scouring every possible statistical detail about Calvin, Calvin Ridley and how many targets he got the week before, and he was saying that the genealogies are boring or that they're detail-oriented. We shouldn't worry about them. Every detail matters in the Word of God. Every specific uh, number, every person's name. Now, I don't mean you get into numerology and figure out if this means that or this means the other. We take it at face value as it's given to us. But it's important. God has it here for an, a, an important reason. And I think we'll see that pretty readily as we start looking at this section. Uh, Genesis 5 is a bit of a reset for humanity. It's now life living under the fall, under sin and death. What does it look like? What's the pattern? What could be expected? What's our situation? And what's coming? You could find elements of all of that in a genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis. So let's look there, and I think you will see with me that there is a certain rhythm on display, a refrain that you probably caught that depicts a bit of a rhythm or a pattern, a bit of a normal way of life. Yes, there are all sorts of variables that come into this life on the other side of the fall and before heaven, but there is a rhythm of life under sin and death as we wait for God's moving of people and events to his appointed end. In that waiting for the promises of God to come help us when we are living under this rhythm of life and death after the fall. Really, you probably notice the opening words sound almost just like the beginning of Genesis, just with a little bit of an addition. It doesn't even state the fact of the sin that happened, but we know it because Seth had to be uh, the replacement for Abel. So without saying that there was sin entered, it's saying that sin had entered. Let's look first at the opening verses and we see a bit of the restatement of our identity, the identity we have as people now living uh, on the other side of sin, waiting for glory. Who are we, we might ask? This book of the generations of Adam, it begins. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the account of Adam. 
It's agreed upon by most scholars that Moses, who was quite a scholar himself by the time he actually wrote the first five books of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, he had resources that he drew from. Yes, the Spirit of God guided and directed the accuracy of that process, but he had written documents. And there's no doubt he had some written document that listed the generations of Adam. These are important features in a people's history. This is the book of the generations of Adam. He has this at his disposal. Now, the book doesn't have to have every person listed and every detail about every, every individual involved, every child. It's, it's generalities to it. We can see that. But there's enough specific about, us, about it to give us clear picture of the importance of what it's communicating. It tells us, again, who we are as people. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. A reminder of us being in the image of God. Yes, sin has entered, and there's a lot of bad stuff that's happened. You got the line of Cain running in opposition to God, their creator, yet demonstrating all sorts of common grace through the things that they created and did. Still in the image of God. Verse 2, male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So there's no rescinding of the image of God. There's no obliteration of the image of God. There's a marring and affecting of the image of God, but there could have been the opportunity taken here to say, you know the image of God, it was taken away because of sin. In fact, the opposite is said here. It's a reminder that this is still true. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now notice this is careful wording. It's not saying that Seth is not created in the image of God. He's created in the image of his father. His father was created in the image of God. His father sinned. And it's a bit of a reference to the fact that, yes, Seth is still in the image of God. We are all still in the image of God as human beings. But there is an impact through Adam, who is the representative head of the race who comes from him. The book of the generations of Adam, when God created man in the image of man. I take a moment just to remind us of how profound this is, that humankind, even on the other side of the fall, after sin, still in the image of God, as image bearers, we have unparalleled privilege and potential, every human being, because of what we've been bestowed by God. This will do, do no eternal good for someone who doesn't fall under the second Adam or come to the second Adam, but in the meantime, there's still great potentials and great blessings that come to humankind because we're created different than the other creatures. As image bearers, we can understand God when he communicates to us. We have that recognition, that ability to relate by language. We can receive an assignment from God that we're equipped to handle. We can have a personal relationship with God. This is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. That's different from the rest of creation. And the image of God remains, even though sin has come. It's not removed, but it's marred. Human beings called to be God's representatives on this earth, to act as his vice regents. We are given an appointed purpose, mission, and assignment. And even when those who don't acknowledge God stumble into doing the things that God's call them to do or created them to do, they find joy and they find some satisfaction in that stewardship of creation, of harnessing energy, of multiplying creatures, of keeping the earth, spreading out and multiplying, male and female, 
created in the image of God. The design for the family, the design for how we are to act with one another, all still in place. None of this has been removed. It's difficult to adhere to now because of sin, but it's still the model that God has. Stays consistent. God blesses mankind in this way, even though sin has come. Seth is born, and Seth is, of course, a fulfillment of a promise that was made in Genesis 3. Here he is in his father's likeness, who's created in the image of God. There's the acknowledgement that there's an impact, but there's also, in this resetting, a reminder to all of us, yes, sin has come, but yes, also, we are created in the image of God. Now, for the believer, for the one who recognizes how that image has been marred and we sense that, we go for the we go for what is the, the answer or the antidote for this. We have to go, we have to, go to the, the Adam that's promised, and we look forward to that, and that colors the rest of our thinking. In fact, that's what colors the rest of the way the Old Testament unfolds. Those who are looking forward to the seed of the woman to come to undo their situation, created in the image of God, they know they're sinners, but they're relying on God for the forgiveness of their sins and the renewal of all things. And then those who don't care, who go on in their sin, they're created in the image of God, so they have great potentials, Great things can come from them societally. Awful things can come as well. But we see this reset gives us a picture and a flavor and a feel for what will come and what will unfold. But the focus here, because the focus in chapter 4 was on Cain, the focus here now is on Seth because he represents the line from which the seed of the woman will come. You'll notice right away, when describing Cain's line, not many personal details were given along the way. I mean, some that we accented, but not the years of their lives and more about their families and so forth. It was more about really this kind of transactional things that happened and how they impacted the world that the rest of the people would be living in. They would build up to the times of Noah that were coming too soon. Here it's more personal and careful. I want you to see. It gives us a bit of our current pattern of living this side of the fall. You know, I read somewhere as we come to to verse 4, which starts the genealogy, I read somewhere that the wording in last will and testaments in the 19th century often would start with this before it would give a will, you know, for everything that happens to someone's estate when they die. It would start by saying, knowing the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death. And then it would depict what should happen after the person dies. Knowing the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death. Very simple but profound and overarching sweeping statement that describes the patterns of our lives. We live and we die. I was thinking of this pattern as I read the refrains and I just looked at our bulletin. Just on the back of our bulletin, we have everything. We have people who have died and we remember them and we come together to ask for God's comfort and look forward to the resurrection. We have babies being born with the roses represented. We have baptisms that occur. We have marriages. We have a marriage conference that's coming up to celebrate how we live much of our lives. It's about our living and our dying. That is the pattern. That is the rhythm of things. That's our current situation in this sin-struck world. And as Christians, we recognize this. We rest in this reality. We depend on God for this. When God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. They didn't fall over dead upon eating. Their spirits died, and then their bodies followed suit. So you might think for the get-go, they didn't really have the taste of death, not until Abel died. But then after Abel dies, it's just many, many, many more deaths follow. In fact, if you look at the passage before us, note the refrain as I walk through. Verse 5, the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. 
The days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. The days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. The days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. The days of Mahalia were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, Jared 962 years, and he died. Verse 27, Methuselah, who lived the longest, but still, after 969 years, he died. I'll take some time to explain the longer lives, at least the way we might think of it, when we come to chapter 6. But here, no matter how many years they live, it's all relative to their experience. They all come to the end of their days, and they must have seemed soon when they came to that fateful day. But one thing we learn as we see the listing and the rhythm and the pattern that is so normal, that there are names given here, and there are spans of years lived, and there are all sorts of pains and and joys and experiences that make up the days of their lives, their years. And God names these individuals in the spans of their life and says a little bit about their family. Now, it's not a lot, but it's more than many people receive. And this is given to us and scripturated in the word of God for all time to see these generations, these multiple generations that God works through. It shows you the personal care he has for people, every person important to God in in his overall eternal economy. We're born, we live, in many cases procreate, and we die. The rhythm of life in the fallen world. Seven times we read, and he died, and he died. This is the reign of death, this side of glory. And reporting the generations, you see without question a certain normal expectation we might have. And you know, in many cases, lives are cut shorter than this. Uh, Pretty regularly, as I've shared with you before, when the weather's good, I'll walk to the cemetery just to think, meditate, pray, listen to my listen to a podcast, whatever I may do, but I'll look at the different uh, memorial stones and I'll look up their names and see if I can figure out a little bit about the person's life. Because it's not about a dead person there, it's about a life that was lived in those spans. And similarly, when we look at these years, these are lives that were lived. And you know, it's interesting, when you do a span, uh, a span of the lives lived, and some people uh, in our own church have done this kind of thing, um, even though they live these long years, they actually live close to each other and overlapped each other all the way almost up to the time of Noah because of the long lifespans. So there's all sorts of interaction, all sorts of life lived, but we have the basic refrain as a way of just reminding us, you'll have your years, no guarantee how many those years are, you'll have those years, and then you'll die. Now for the Christian, that should not be that alarming. That's what we expect. We understand why. Uh, For the unbeliever, this is difficult. This is why the world at large tries to put off death or act like death won't happen or act frantic if they think they might die. Uh, We don't address it till we're threatened. The believer shouldn't be this way. The believer understands the reign of death because of the fall, but we look to a hope that gives us an ability to handle that reality, that rhythm, so it doesn't control us. We don't live by the day we're going to die. We live on the basis of the life we have and the time we have. In the book of Hebrews, it's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, which does not scare the believer because judgment will be based on the righteousness of Christ for us. The author of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to give birth and there is a time to die. There's no escaping this. Jonathan Edwards said it the most vividly, at least the most vividly that I have seen. Death spares no rank, he said. No condition of men, kings as well as subjects, are liable to this fatal stroke Death spares no calling or profession. Death is favorable to no age. Sometimes the infant is no sooner set free from his dark prison, but presently he is sent to a darker confinement, the grave. Thus, both old and young submit to the direct edict of mortality. 
Death makes no difference between sexes. There is no place where death does not and cannot enter. Some have been seized at the plow, some in the streets, others in their shops, some in the market, others in retirements. It appears then that there is no privileged place where this officer cannot arrest us. And consequently, we are everywhere at his his disposal. There's no time or any other circumstance of our life which is not vulnerable to death. Winter and summer, spring and autumn, sea time and harvest, the cold seasons and the hot ones, and those which are more moderate are made use of by this destroyer. In the day and in the night, in the morning and in the evening, in time set for devotion or for worldly business, in time of work or recreation, in times of calamity and prosperity, this enemy will invade us. This is the truth, and this is what we see in the rhythm and the pattern. And for you, believer, um, you have a certainty, the hope of the resurrection that helps color these things, that helps you with the news you receive, the difficulties that come. I don't mean it's not still hard, not uncomfortable. None of us look forward to the process of dying, but we know it is coming. There's no avoiding this. And for the believer, we find our rest. For the unbeliever, it's an opportunity for you to make right with God by going to the second Adam. That's the underlying reality, the powerful reality. What does this reality that the Bible tells us about life and death, how does this help us uh, beyond what I've just said? I think at a very basic level, it absolutely should serve the realistic person who knows this is the case, who contemplates this. It should serve to make us humble. This humbles us, this levels us. Aging onto dying will put us in our proper place before God if we allow it to do what it should do. Because ultimately what it drives us to do when we know the certainty is death, it drives us to Christ. It drives us to the one who can give us what we need for handling death, the one who's defeated death, not a fellow dyer who stayed dead, someone who defeated death, that's who we go to. So we find our refuge in Christ as a result of recognizing we live and we will die. It also gives us something else for the here and the now. It gives us an urgency about our relationships, uh, that we invest in other people, invest in the, the times with our families, with our church family, with people we're reaching out to. People are important. They live and they die. Most stuff fades away and it doesn't mean anything, but people mean something. They're important. They're eternal. So it gives us urgency about our relationships. It also should color the way we look at stuff, the material stuff of the world, the things that are passing away, how much wasted time we spend on those things. Yes, much of it necessary, much of it not. Knowing we live and we die will help. Some of the clearest thinking people you will ever meet are the people who have been given a a limit on their life. They know they have only so much time to live. Now, those people, especially mature believers in that position, yes, it's still difficult. I don't mean you're not a believer if you struggle with that news. There's so much that comes with that. But as they think about it, they recognize how much stuff doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. And it comes down to the people involved in their lives, the people they've invested in their lives, and maybe some things that they could do to help others with material items. But some of the most clearest thinking people are believers who grasp, we live and we die, and they know they're about to die. Listen, we're all about to die. It's just a matter of relativity on how much the time and how quickly it passes. But the verse, the the passage before us doesn't just leave us with this rhythm and just stay there. Laden throughout it is the hope that I've been alluding to. Look at verse 3, and then you look at verse 22, and then 28. Verse 3, the reference to Seth. Verse 22, a reference to Enoch. And then finally, 28, a reference to Noah, 
which we'll pick up in, verse, in chapter 6 more uh, conclusively. First, notice the hope that's laden in the birth announcement of Seth. Verse 3, it was announced officially in the last verses of chapter 4 where Eve, with the response of God has appointed a man. In other words, the Lord has answered the death of Abel with the birth of Seth, who would replace Abel in the line of the seed. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his, his image and named him Seth. Now, you'll note verse 3 doesn't make reference to the other children of Adam and Eve. It's, it's picking out Seth because he is going to be the start of the line of the seed. This is the first person towards the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. So this is hope laden in verse 3 already. Yes, we'll have this rhythm of life and death and the reality of it, but we'll also have the promise of, that comes from Seth, who is Christ, who will undo what the first Adam did and reverse what death has brought. But then we come to this mysterious figure in verse 22. Down to verse 24, we're introduced to Enoch, who stands out. He breaks the rhythm a bit. He breaks the refrain. In the midst of all the deaths we're reading about over these many uh, generations, there's a reference to one who did not experience physical death. It's almost like a little reminder that, yes, this is the norm. Death is the norm. The vast majority of the time, it will be this. Pretty much everyone should expect this. But God reminds that he is the Lord over life and death and from time to time does something different, and Enoch is such a figure. It says in verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. This phrase, Enoch walked with God, it's very unique in the Old Testament. In fact, it's mentioned again in verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, we wouldn't have a lot of knowledge about what this means if it weren't for the, Old, the New Testament giving some commentary on it. In fact, interestingly, Enoch's an Old Testament figure, but there are more verses devoted to him in the New Testament. So we can start to unpack why is it that God, uh, what is in this description he walked with God, and why did God take him? Um, it's not a punishment, obviously. He was walking with God. Twice it says it about him. The only other person in the Old Testament who is said to walk with God is Noah. In verse 9 of the next chapter, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah is Enoch's great-grandson. He walked with God. What does this mean? Because wouldn't it be great to walk with God and have to avoid physical death and be raptured or translated, as, as it were? Well, we see this is not the norm but it does give us some insight about how we might live a life that is pleasing to God in the midst of whatever times we live. When we go to the book of Hebrews, there's a bit of explanation about why it was that God translated or took Enoch. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith, through the instrument of faith, because he had faith. This starts to resonate with other things we've been reading about what God accepts. Why did he accept Abel's offering? Abel's offering was in humble faith. So we start to see um, at the end of the era of the Canaanites being born, we read that the Sethites were born and people started to call upon the name of the Lord in chapter 4. That's a cry of faith, dependence on God. Enoch is described as having walk, walked with God. And then in Hebrews it says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, 
he was commended as having pleased God. How did he please God? It says it was by faith that he was taken up. Then it says in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In a nutshell, Enoch lived a life trusting in God's provision for whatever he would need. He had faith and rest in him, not in himself, but in God. In this way, this transparent relationship where he knows it's all of God, all of God's grace, he depends on God for everything, that's a life of faith. That's a life of dependence. And that's descriptive of Enoch's life. It's not the norm that someone would have such an experience. And the fact of the matter, we know from the full of the biblical teaching, that for us to even have that quality of faith, to have faith at all, it's in and of itself a gift from God, lest anyone might boast, as we read in the assurance of pardon. So the faith that Enoch has is the thing that commends him to God. The faith that Abel has is the thing that commends him to God. The faith that the generation of Seth's first offspring had, that commended them to God. It's dependence, it's humility, it's recognition that you and you alone are God, that you exist, and that you reward those who seek him. We seek your salvation. We seek you, O Lord. We call upon your name. It's a resounding common theme through Scripture. How we might be pleasing to God is by having rest in him and what he provides. We so often think it's how we live a certain way, how we do a certain thing. Those things just evidence whether you're resting, whether you have faith. That's what we see described with Enoch. And this is a great hope for everybody, all believers. And then when we read it through the lens of Hebrews, even more so. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Verse 24. Oh, how we might walk with God this way. Now there's one more bit of hope that leads us to the next chapter. And this is the person of Noah, who's mentioned last here in chapter 5. It says in verse 28, when Lamech, this is not the Lamech obviously from Cain, a different Lamech. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And what Lamech says next, I'm not convinced he understood the prophetic value of it. He was speaking as a father, thankful that God had given him a son. He called on his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Lamech would know, and everybody knew how hard it was to work the soil. This one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Here Noah is born with great fanfare from his father. I think on the very basic level, his father's a farmer. He's a keeper of, of livestock, no doubt. Whatever it is he must have been doing, most people were doing it. And a son meant more help for these things, to make it easier the toil that he was undergoing. And we know that Noah grow, grew up to be very skilled. He built an ark, built an ark over those years. He was good with tools. He was strong. We know all of this based on what comes from his life. And he senses this great gift of God to give him Noah. But there's something much greater about Noah. And this is the hope we learn of as it unfolds. But we know that Noah will be favored of God when it would have been totally right for God to wipe out everybody. He remembers his promise to to Adam and Eve, his promise through Genesis 3, and now it will be preserved through Noah. Noah will be the one whereby the seed is preserved 
even though everyone deserved judgment at that point, God keeps to his promise and Noah is a representative. He's pleased with God because Noah too walks by faith. In a time that seemed most desperate, Noah becomes the one that even though there's great judgment all around him, the ark is built as a picture of Christ, a picture of the seed who will come, a preserving of the seed and the seed itself who will preserve those who are on that ark, who believe in God for that salvation. And Noah pictures this. And ultimately, it's that second Adam who will come from the seed who will relieve us of the toil that we're under, give us final rest, true Sabbath breast. We look forward to it. So through Noah, just as his father said, this one will bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands, ultimately picturing Christ who will come. I think we can see in chapter 5, there's a rhythm of life under sin. There's a rhythm that has sin and death involved. And we wait, though, we wait as his people, looking forward to the way he moves people and events to its appointed end. And we long for that end. We look forward to it. In the meantime, we have what God has called us to do. We're created in his image. And despite sin and all its ill effects, as we confess our sins, believe on the second Adam, we have this purpose that is crafted in our life for the glory of God. We live and we die. We know to number our days and make the most of them by God's grace. We're very limited. We know that humbly before God. We live and we die. We live encouraged by God's saving promises. Evidence through Seth, through Enoch, through Noah. We recognize God's saving plan and we glory in that plan and the future that awaits us. Life after the fall has its great difficulties and miseries. But life after the fall in Christ has its great hopes and serves a true preparation for the glory that awaits. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for every word of your word. We thank you for the details as well as the sweeping statements. Thank you, O Lord, for your work of salvation that you are still doing as you call people to yourself and to the second Adam, to Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for this salvation, this great salvation, so great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.